America, Washington, D.C., signing on. Welcome to another episode of Radio Contra, the podcast of AmericanPartisan.org and hosted by me, the Commandante of the Mossy Oak Militia, the free men and women out there, the freedom fighters, all of you that are sitting president, the administrator of the state last night has labeled as extremists simply for believing that our country is the greatest on earth. A position that they are today desperately trying to walk back with the knowledge that last night's speech was absolutely hideous and has backfired and will continue to backfire. I'm joined today by very special guest and important guest and a guy that I am honored to have on a man who is taking politics into his own hands, a guy who has a very interesting story about how he came to conservatism and why he loves this country as much as he does. He's running for the state house in new hampshire mr mike belcher what's up brother oh man thank you so much for having me i i really appreciate you having me on here uh to get to speak to your audience i'm really looking forward to this because we have a lot to talk about a lot to say amen brother amen well you know you're running for the state house in new hampshire correct that's right yep i'm running for the state house out of carroll county district four uh, Wakefield, New Hampshire, trying to get some stuff done. Up there in the 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 frozen tundra <laughs> of of the great north, the the free state of New Hampshire, the That's home right. of the Free State Project, the the um, you know people people that aren't going to take it laying down, you know, and and I really consider New Hampshire to be the shining jewel of freedom especially in the Northeast, but theirs is a model that can be followed everywhere in, in the United States. And it's really wonderful to see. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I love I love this state. We have a little bit of everything from, from the ocean access to drive an hour. You're up in the mountains where I live. Um, we have a very interesting political process here. We have the largest uh, representative body, um, I think, anywhere in North America. We have uh, over 400 people coming together on a voluntary basis to serve uh, for two years at a time. Um, and I am, uh, I'm running. I, they finally made me mad enough to do this. 
because I believe um, we need people on our side who are going to shift the Overton window and uh, make the things that seem impossible possible. And I, I think I can do that. I, uh, I've written a bunch of bills, and I'd love to talk about some of those, too. Amen. Amen. I, I would I would certainly uh, so I, you know, I'm fired up that we have pro freedom candidates, that we have pro liberty candidates, pro American candidates that are stepping up to the plate. And I think immediately you reached out to me on social media and and there was, uh, you know, your your writings over at Substack, I think that really set you apart from a lot of the other writers that I've known over the years in the liberty movement in total, because yours are grounded in something more than the regurgitation of thought, uh, the institutional inbreeding that we have. And, and this issue that um, conservatives typically will have this libertarians are absolutely guilty of this. Um, you know, the different fragments of, of the larger liberty movement, the different ends of it, so to speak, we, we kind of speak to a um, an internal audience and we use an internal voice and, and we're kind of only talking to the choir or preaching to the choir, so to speak. And in reading your work specifically, um, which one of your, your pieces I shared over on AmericanPartisan.org and I thought it was just beautifully done. But thanks for that. You're, you're not speaking to the conservative audience. You're speaking to the left specifically. And, and very much as, as I've done, you have picked up on leftist talking points because you know leftist talking points. You know the Marxist talking points. You know specifically what they're armed with and their ideological framework. And you are creating a very competent argument against it, which is something that conservatives really need to embrace because for so long we've listened to the pundits out there and, and kind of this internal monologue that is made the same points over and over again. And I think that your perspective is a breath of fresh air. If I appreciate you will, that. Oh, ab absolutely, brother. If, if you will, describe for us your path to conservatism, how you got to where you are and how you became armed with this knowledge and this very unique point of view. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I grew up on the hard left. I grew up a, a fairly militant atheist and um, I, I wouldn't have called myself a communist, but knowing everything I knew now, I, I was essentially a communist. Um, for most of my young life, I, I grew up within progressive movement, within environmentalism. Um, I bought into the, the easy talking points, and it, it allowed me to um, to take on that perspective. That when I started the transition away from that, um, in perhaps my early to mid twenties, um, I was able to hold on to what I had thought before in order to kind of analyze why I was thinking these things. It was a long process for me, um, for sort of first leaving that side to move into sort of a libertarian um, mindset and place where, because libertarianism is kind of the safe sort of middle ground, I think for a lot of people who begin to transition away from the left. And the thing that brought me was actually just rationality and reason. I tend to be a fairly rational um, person. And I like um, I've, I've always loved the Constitution. 
and the way that it was written, the idea of, of natural rights. Um, so when it was when I was in my late teens, early twenties, I began I began to experience cognitive dissonance um, when looking at the the idea that we are the idea of the left, which is that we have positive rights. These ideas that we have rights to certain things like like food or housing, and then comparing that to the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, where it enumerates not positive rights, but negative rights, the rights to be free from certain things like tyranny or the, to, be, to be free in your associations with other people. These are rights that don't require anything of anybody else except to stay out of your way. So it was an easy transition into, into libertarianism from there. And then I, uh, I continued to evolve. Um, I found Christ. I became a Christian. I am a, uh, I am a Baptist uh, right now. I've been a Christian for uh, three or four years now. And that, that was a really big impact on my ideology, too, because just like as I became a libertarian, it wasn't, it wasn't propaganda that led me to become a libertarian. It was reason and rationality. And that was the same thing with Christianity. I didn't come into Christianity because of propaganda. I, became, I came into Christianity because I was searching for truth, and I wanted to find that. And that is what I yeah. found. And then once I did, I, everything began falling into place for me. And I, be, I began to understand the, the vision that our founders had, that our nation was not the shining bright beacon on a hill because it was something giving you things. It was that it respected the law of God, that there are multiple different spheres of governance. So there's the family sphere of governance, there's the civil sphere of governance, and there's a church sphere of governance. And when the civil sphere steps outside of what it's supposed to be doing, which is, by the way, what our Constitution is, our Constitution is in agreement with biblical scripture as understood by Reformation theology, and it outlines what the role of the civil government is. And when it steps outside of that, it becomes tyrannical. When it fails to live up to that also, it can be tyrannical. Um, so it's been a long process for me to come to where I have finally began to understand um, everything about what I, what I believe in. Um, but then a couple years back, around the same time that I was uh, becoming a Christian, everything, I realized everything was kind of falling apart around me. And some of the things that I would have expected to happen, like people just standing up and starting to shoot, didn't happen. And I didn't understand why they didn't happen at first. So I went down one rabbit hole after another until I understood the, the philosophies of, of Rousseau and Hegel and Marx. And I understood the concepts of political warfare, including things like controlled opposition, um, psychological warfare and whatnot. Uh, and, and through all this, I've been, I have been trying to find what is true. So everything I do, I try to ground it back to reality. I try not to make it too complicated if I don't have to always bring it back to what, what I know to be true. Um, and yeah, that's, that's what I, that's what I've done to arrive where I am today. It's very profound. It's very profound. And, and something something that I, I want to circle back to uh, 
is that that you were brought up and and in in that hard left household and you adhered to environmentalism as as a radical idea and this is in speaking as somebody who is uh very familiar with edward abbey uh who is kind of the ideological founder of earth first and you know kind of the the green anarchist movement that end uh john zerzan of course, uh, who, who's another influential uh, green anarchist that's out there, um, who I believe is still active, um, you know, and, and having met uh, Rick Scares at one point during uh, my academic career, who uh, Rick Scares, very uh, interestingly, if anybody uh, in the audience, mo- most of my audience probably isn't aware of who he is, but he's a, a, uh, a what's known as a participant observer. And he is a case study in uh, academic ethics of why you don't become a participant in that area of, of what you are studying. And he, he tried to use his environmental activism as uh, or when he got into quite a bit of trouble for it as an excuse um, that he he was studying it. He wasn't participating in it. And it, it backfired on him. It led to a lot of problems. Uh, very, very interestingly. But it, it, you you coming from that background is very fascinating to me that when you got into conservative politics, when you made that transition, when you began to find truth, because truth and factuality are not, they, they may be synonyms, but they are not the same, you know, as, as you're explaining and and you're exactly right. Uh, truth is philosophical fact is is hard science and there's a differentiation between the two and and a very strong one but coming from that you expected that there would be violent revolution that there would be people shooting at one another at this point or or at a previous point we'll say we'll use a decade ago 2012 where there, there was a lot of political rhetoric that was very hot going back and forth at that time, not to the degree that I would say that it is now. What, what we're experiencing today is a um, is a natural outgrowth of that, for sure. Yeah. But you expected that there would be there would be shooting at at some point in between then and now, and yet it hasn't, which which was surprising to you. And you're coming from that from a political warfare point of view, which is a very Marxian, a very Maoist. You know, we could even see, uh, say to, to some degree, Hegel with the, the master-slave uh, uh, dialectic, which was, you know, the the foundational thesis for Marx. Sure. It's yep. very fascinating um, that, that you came into it with that expectation and that political warfare and psychological operations, you recognize this very readily. So taking all that into account, Interpret that viewpoint into what we saw last night coming out of this administration in Philadelphia. Well, yeah. So, man, what we saw last night was really um, it was interesting on a number of fronts. Obviously, it was it was terrible for the country, first of all. Um, I'm not sure I've ever seen a a speech that dark, um, you know, except in the history books delivered in foreign languages like German. Um, It was it was very dark. and in order to look back on some of the historical precedent for that and, and the political warfare angles of it, um, you, you have to look at the fact that he was very clearly painting a certain fragment of the country, a, a large fragment, at least, you know, at least 70 something million people 
to be enemies of the state and not merely enemies of the state, but an actual existential threat to the state, right? So, so who is he talking to with that? And now he, he doesn't need to talk to our side in that way. I mean, you, you could make the argument that he's trying to get people fired up to do something stupid to justify a crackdown. And I mean, maybe there is some of that too. He doesn't really need to do that though, because they're still um, spinning the wheels off of the January 6th thing that was well over a year ago at this point. So they're, they've got a lot of juice left in that. So my perspective is the, the reason that it was what we saw last night from, from the angles to the lighting, that was all designed to instill fear. And it was designed to instill fear in his base. Because these, are the, these people have themselves really spun up into a, um, in, into a psychological condition that is very mob-like. Um, and that message was delivered to them. And what that means is when you're delivering that message that these people over here are an existential threat to your base and you're, 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 you're forwarding a fear narrative, and then you actually, at one point during the speech, say things, and I'm paraphrasing here, but, but he actually said to his base, you need to get involved and you need to confront these people, right? So what he's doing is actually in what's called an, a method of open communication or open planning. And he's giving a green light to um, elements within his own uh, within his own base. Some of those elements are just you know sort of radicalizing people, individuals, lone wolf types. But he's also giving a green light to the paramilitary element of the left wing, which is the the Antifa types, the BLM types. That um, that political targeting is now an acceptable thing to do. And this is something I've been worried about for a while because we have a we have an outbreak of political well of just general violence in this country, where you see mob actions all over the place, and it wouldn't take a lot for these mob actions to turn into basically political pogroms um, all over the place in major cities, and I think that's definitely on the table right now after that speech. Yeah, I I agree one thousand percent, and then some. The, the left. And this is something that I was I was talking about just yesterday. The left is no longer interested in dialogue with the right. And I think that that anyone out there that considers themselves a mainstream conservative, uh, you know, kind of a approaching centrist type point of view, you're being pushed out. Now, I'm not demonizing folks that are centrist. I'm not demonizing anyone for their viewpoint. Um, and and contrary to popular belief, I'm not. I am not willing to demonize the left for their views on things. I'm willing to have an open dialogue so much as it can be respectful and that it can be, uh, you know, at least in recognition that, that we're still part of the same country. They're not willing to do that anymore though. They're not interested in this point of view anymore with us. And and they do not want to have, they're not, they're not, and it, but if I'm honest with you, it almost doesn't matter at this point. And, and I'm not saying right. that it, it's wrong to talk to people. There's nothing wrong with talking to people. But there's a more fundamental problem than that. And, and something that I've learned throughout my, um, my personal studies on this whole thing and, and going back to the philosophies, you have to understand that the fundamental tool, the fundamental weapon of the left for hundreds of years now, and, and, and perhaps if you want to go all the way back, a lot longer than that, 
is the manipulation of language. They, they fight their war at the level of meaning of language. Uh, just as an example, um, last night we heard a lot of talk about conservatives not respecting the Constitution. Now, if you're just your typical normally, normally conservative, that sounds ridiculous to you. Because obviously right. conservatives are the party of the Constitution, right? We, we, we respect the Constitution. We adore the Constitution. But if you're, if you're one of the initiated, somebody who speaks both languages, you understand what he's actually saying there. He's not saying that – he's not talking about the original Constitution. He's talking about the Constitution of 1913, the beginning of the progressive era and the manipulation of language that turned the Constitution into a living document. Now, what, is, what does a living document mean? It's a silly euphemism, right? It's, it's a piece of paper. It's obviously not living. So it's not, a, it's not a statement that appeals to reality. It's a euphemism. It's a euphemism for, well, this document actually we can just kind of – Mike, are you there? I think we've been cut off. There you are. There we go. Did I lose you for a second? Yeah, yeah, just for a second. Oh, uh, but you, all right. you, you were you were discussing um, the where, where you left sure. off was the living document and sure. that so, entering the progressive era. This is so profound, by the way. I, I have I have never heard anyone in conservative media, alternative mainstream, wherever. Describe it in this way, and, and I'm very excited. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's something you have to be able to speak both languages to understand, right? Because when you, when you call it a living document, it's a euphemism that means we can reinterpret this document at will to serve the, the needs of our current time and desires, right? And, and the same goes for the word democracy. When they use the word democracy, when, when we hear democracy, we think – you know, well, we may think two wolves and a sheep deciding what's for dinner, which is perfectly fair. That's what our founders would have thought of democracy. But just on a very, you know, rational level, democracy is people get the vote and then the most votes wins. But their their vision of democracy actually goes way beyond that. Um, because if you go all the way back to the philosophy of Rousseau, he talked about how all people are essentially equal, not just in like before the law or before God, but they actually have the same um, the same abilities. They're born with all of the same possibilities in front of them. And the only thing that limits those possibilities is the culture. So we, we develop this attitude of culture or this uh, doctrine of cultural constructivism that says that that culture is the only thing that means or that makes uh, men stronger than women, for instance, on average, which is which is obviously ridiculous to anybody who knows anything about biology. But that's actually the doctrine of social constructivism that dates back to Rousseau and all the way through Hegel, all the way through Marx, all the way through the Frankfurt School scholars, all the way to the present day with wokeism. This this doctrine that they have to um, they have to make democracy. It's not something that exists. It's something that is becoming. As we, as we eliminate uh, hierarchy and – I'm going to use a big word here – emanantage the eschaton, which is to bring about the end of history as in like an Armageddon yes. scenario, 
we can actually enter into this sixth stage of history, which is like heaven for communists. It's actually called communism. And this is the reason they say communism has never been tried is because they've never achieved stage six. They, they kill everyone in stage five, which is socialism. Um, but in communism, stage six, everyone is not just equal, but they're the same. They have the exact same abilities and there is no hierarchy. And at that point, once there is no hierarchy, everyone has an equal say in everything. And only then is true democracy achieved. All right. So when they when they make these appeals to democracy, that's at the heart of it. They're they're saying that that the people who are against them are getting in the way of their pagan god of history that is driving them progressively toward the utopia. That's what progressive means, by the way. This you're exactly right. This is and and. You have just put that in a way that is more digestible than I believe that, that I could have ever done it. I think that that uh, the listeners of this program, everybody that's going to download this and it's going to be in the thousands. And when they hear that, that that's going to wake them up. You have to wake up. And, and we have seen this in uh, the rhetoric of communist revolutionaries throughout history, why they have erased the history of a place, um, you know, Pol Pot with the introduction of year zero. It is now year zero. That was the beginning. Once they took power, once the Khmer Rouge took power, it is now year zero and we're going to begin anew. Um, that's why they have pogroms. That's why they have the ethnic cleansing. That's why they tear down the statues. That's And, and we have seen the preparation of the battlefield for this revolution that has been going on for the at least the better part of a decade, I would say from from the academic uh, academic side of the house, it's been going on for substantially longer. What we're seeing in the mainstream media, what we see um, that that is getting out into the the social entity now, is at least a decade old, because academia has moved a decade full. At that point, it has, in, in yeah, absolutely. It, it definitely nope. has it, and I and I would even say, I mean, you, you can trace this thing back, because I mean, ideas are, are ideas are a thing that always have predecessors. So, I mean, in theory, you could trace this all the way back to the beginning of time. But a, a good proximate starting point where this came to America was the Young Hegelians. So, the Young Hegelians was a movement right after the death of Hegel that brought his movement, brought his uh, ideas all over the world. Um, and that includes to right. America. So people like uh, Dewey of the Dewey Decimal System, he was a young Hegelian communist. People like uh, Woodrow Wilson, young Hegelian. Um, so that this has been a revolution in the making because the metaphysics of America, the metaphysics being the, the sort of foundational presuppositions about what it means to be alive, what it means to, to have consciousness, what our ethics should be, um, these these things all came from Scripture, the God of the Bible. That's where in this country, that's where our Constitution comes from. Uh, they make no no secret about that. But over the course of the last roughly hundred or so years in America, they have slowly been replacing the metaphysic of Reformed Christianity with the metaphysic of Rousseau, Hegel, and Marx. 
The socialism metaphysic has sort of just become the water that we swim in. So it's taken up through um, through osmosis, just like just like anybody would the metaphysic that is dominant within their society. Um, so we find ourselves now after this hundred plus year um, push, long march, if you will, uh, finally at the tail end of the revolution where we're actually in uh, society's trap now that this is going to take over as a fully dominant ideology unless uh, we stop it. And it's up to us how we're going to go about that, but we have to work hard. That's right. That's right. And and that leads us, I, I think that that's, that's the perfect lead into my next question. And, and for the folks that are listening to this, you know, this is audio only interview, but you know, we're, we're able to see one another as we're recording this. There are no notes here. There, there was very little show prep into this. There are no notes. This is coming right off the top of your head. And this so profound here and, and solutions, because we've talked about what their aim, what their objective, and and now there is no denying any of this. There is no, there can be no uh, walking back of any of these. Whoever wrote that speech for Biden, and he did have a teleprompter out there. He did have a teleprompter. Whoever wrote this speech for Biden knew exactly what they were putting in there. They've taken the mask off, and now they're desperately, at least right now, based on their own internal polling, they're desperately trying to walk that back. It's not going to be successful. Because no. they've, they've, they, they're going to what, what they've done, I believe, at least in my estimation, is a critical error. But this also makes them critically dangerous at this point when authority has failed. And Max Weber was was very succinct in uh, as one of the foundational thinkers of sociology, laying out the forms of authority, but also explaining what happens when those forms of authority are thus questioned or are otherwise put into jeopardy. Whenever they are done so, especially when it comes to legal rational authority, that is responded to through force. And I think that 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 fear, that that verboding fear that we see that a lot of people are now exhibiting on social media in the comments and kind of the response out there and this general mood that's occurring in, in the marketplace of ideas, as well as out on Main Street, is that everybody's kind of taking a pause today. Like, man, that's that's uh, th- this is not America. This this is not the America that we recognize. The imagery is not the America we recognize. The language is not the America that we recognize. And now we have to begin to be successful as counter-revolutionaries. We have to begin a conversation on how do we approach that with recognition to failures of the past. Counter-revolutionary yeah. movements in the past have been usually extremely violent and 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 very tragic. Uh, it's it's very tragic. Revolutions are very tragic. Counter-revolutions are very tragic. And so, in understanding that, in recognizing that, we have to begin to talk about solutions. And I think that that your approach in recognizing the problem, I think that you have some very good and very viable solutions. You say that that in New Hampshire, you have bills that you plan on introducing once you're elected, and we're going to do our damnedest to get you elected up there. I appreciate um, that. Describe for us some of the bills that you have on tap and your plan for 
countering all of this? Sure, absolutely. Love to. Um, so I, I've got a multi, sort of a multi-pronged approach here. Um, the the way that I try to look at fighting back toward this is is we need to be taking lessons from uh, from the Chinese. Actually, we need to be looking to unrestricted warfare, and we need to be understanding how we can turn um, activities on all fronts uh, in our favor. Um, that's that's something that we absolutely have to do. So on so first of all on the on the legal front, and as far as lawmaking, um, I've got. I've got a number of bills that do different things, but my big, my biggest one, and this is a, I call it a dagger straight to the heart of woke. Um, so properly understood this ideology that I've been, I've been describing from Rousseau through Hegel through Marx. It's not merely a philosophy, like philosophies are kind of like, you know, heady things that give you some ideas about stuff, but these are actually theologies. These are religious worldviews. They they give you um, they give you an entirely different lens through which to view the world. They they give you um, duties of conscience, doing the work, things that you have to do to bring about this better state of society. They have a uh, an eschaton that needs to be humanitized or bringing about the end of history, and uh, because they have their own uh, trinity, they have a trinity that goes um, society or rather the state must be perfected in order to then perfect society, which will then perfect man. And at the end of history, man will recognize himself as God, and no longer will there be any need for a state, because man is perfect at this point. So the state naturally collapses into a state of utopian anarchy. So that, that's actually the end, the end state of communism. That's what they're always trying for. So this is a religion properly understood. So I have drafted a resolution that I'm going to introduce, and I'm trying to get it introduced all over the place, not just in New Hampshire. This resolution identifies Marxism and all of its subspecies. So subspecies of Marxism would include uh, cultural Marxism. It would include postmodern Marxism. It would include wokeism. Um, all of these would be identified as religions. Okay. So once you identify them as religions, guess what? They're all over the government. They're all over schools. You've got diversity, equity, inclusion everywhere. And those words don't mean what some people think they mean. They're actually very evil things. Um, everywhere this has been instituted now is the establishment of state church. And that implicates the establishment clause of the First Amendment. And that opens up the floodgates for lawsuits to strip every last bit of this ideology out of government, out of schools, and even um, out of the private sector insofar as you cannot force religious ideology on people. So that's that's my big one, and I'm trying to get this everywhere. Um, that's smart. That's yeah, smart. so that's, that, that's, that's one of them. The other ones are a little more pragmatic. Um, I'm going after... Uh, Obviously, things like uh, the degeneracy of uh, drag queen story hours. We should not be exposing children to that stuff now. I have my own views as a Christian on drag queens. I don't think the government should be powerful enough to tell adults what they do in private. I just don't think that they it, it should be that powerful because then it can hurt too many people. Um, but when kids get involved, that is it absolutely should be a criminal act. Um, I have another... 
Yep. I've got another bill uh, to severely criminalize the uh, destruction or removal of the sex organs of minors. This is something that's being done at Dartmouth here in New Hampshire. Um, it's become, through excellent activists like Chris Rufo, um, people are becoming aware of these things going on at places like Boston's Children's Hospital and, all, and elsewhere, where they're actually cutting the breasts off of you know, 13, 14-year-old girls. And it's yep. mostly girls because girls are more susceptible to this social contagion of transgenderism. Right. Um, and, and I use that word even though I don't like using that word because, again, words have, words have a lot of power. And trans actually means something. Okay, To be trans, it means to transform or to transition. And, and a man can't become a woman. Nor can a woman become a man. It's not possible. So just by using that word, I'm actually giving them a small victory in in the uh, the psychological political warfare arena. I don't love doing it. Um, it's more properly called gender dysphoria. It is a mental health condition. Um, right. So it's still in the DSM four. Yeah. This is this is something that that the the gender theorists out there quote unquote which. You know, it is a in, an incredibly problematic area of of social yeah, right. work and and, and uh, social theory. Uh, you know, the 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 uh, the the chairwoman of the American Sociological Association is the person who coined the phrase intersectional feminism when mm-hmm. feminism as, as a theory it reached once it it transitioned past second ways second wave feminism and it no longer had a a simplistic view of of females and and femininity alone now it it became this this uh conduit for everything else now we are absolutely interfuse and and interject everything else and it began well over a decade ago and we have where we are now and and you know very interestingly here in north carolina a lot of this began, and and whenever I have students that come down from the Northeast or uh, other uh, corners of the United States, they, they're very shocked to find out that North Carolina was actually the first state that began all of this in mm. in practice when it became uh, in, in praxis, as the Marxists will say, yeah. that it that we had House Bill Two, which was a reactionary measure to the erasure of bathrooms. And so in all public places, there was a, uh, the, the mayor, the then mayor of Charlotte, North Carolina, who was a gender studies professor at UNC Charlotte, decided that the city of Charlotte would no longer have gendered assigned bathrooms. And this created a multitude of second and third order problems, legality problems. There was no remedy for any of this. And so the state of North Carolina, as a reactionary measure, because the Republicans were in control of of both houses of our Congress and still are, said, no, we're not going to do that. And you had the NBA, you had the NFL to a much lesser degree, you had the NCAA, you had all of these athletic associations that were saying, you know, knee-jerk reaction, oh no, this is terrible, North Carolina is a bunch of bigots and all this stuff. But that's where it really began, it, it, into the public eye. That That's where it transitioned into its praxis phase. And so oh, yeah. now... 
we're seeing all of this. It's all out there. But the DSM itself changed because they petitioned the American Psychological Association, which publishes the DSM, to erase this, take it down as a mental illness. Now it's no longer a mental illness. It absolutely is. And furthermore, we're not even allowing the study of perhaps the correlation of the overprescription of SSRIs and gender dysphoria. We haven't oh, yeah. done that. Uh, we, you know, the, the meme that goes around about soy boys and how, um, you know, testosterone is blocked and, and that soy creates pro estrogen hormones. This is a scientific mm -hmm. fact. It's been studied over and over again. It's repeatable. It's replicatable. And yet there is no study going on into any of this because the pharmaceutical companies themselves will not allow it. So you have this very strange, uh, position that we find ourselves where the the very corporatized capitalized medical industry is actually profiteering off of marxist ideology oh yeah well what, what was it that lenin said um mercy is the only sin in uh in communism i believe i believe that it's not a direct quote but it's something like that well nowadays you have yes. uh, corporatists running these companies the only sin to them is not making more money I mean, there was a time when there were, you know, good American biblical principles that would guide people in their, you know, business decisions, which is why someone like uh, uh, John Adams would say something like, our constitution is suitable only for immoral and religious people. Well, guess what? There's only so much government's going to be able to do about this, or me as a lawmaker. We also need a cultural renewal. And that's another side of the coin that I'm, I'm working on also with uh, another project that I have uh, called Remoralization, which is sort of, it's meant to be the, the almost opposite of the process of demoralization as described by Yuri Bezmenov. Oh. That is that is incredible. And, and, you know, your importance to the larger freedom movement, to turning the tide of totalitarianism, because all of this, this the, the all of these pieces are part of a larger whole that we have that that we are uh, that we're experiencing right now, and and this is absolutely brilliant. You're, you're speaking in terms that I believe that every politician in America that wants to push this back, you're speaking in terms that every politician right now needs to be speaking in. Um, to your detractors out there, which I'm sure you have no shortage of. Sure. That, that will say that that are going to label you as a as a bigot as all these evil things. I think that you've made a a very rational, very logical, and and calm argument against this. I think that that I I would not label you as any of those things as somebody who who's observed you, um, and and read your writings and is is familiar with you. What would you say to them? Um, well, actually, there there's a good tool. And this is, again, actually part of my project of remoralization. And it's a project I've had to work on myself because I was severely demoralized with um, as far as getting in, living most of my life on the left side of the aisle. Um, so one of the one of my my theory here anyway, is that once people are able to get in touch with reality and the real world such that this the sort of spell of language manipulation begins to break they actually regain their ability to feel and project righteous anger in the real world. And if you'll notice, um, whether it's Jeff Flake in an elevator or whatever else, people 
when confronted with strong emotion, they get knocked off their base a little bit. And now logic doesn't do that to people usually. Emotion does. What we actually need to do is rediscover our ability to get mad about being lied to and lied about. And when somebody comes after me for something that I am not or accuses me of something that I am not, especially when they're doing something quite evil, I'm going to give it back to them and I'm going to knock them off their base. And more importantly, anyone who's watching is going to get knocked off of their base and they're going to start to wonder about their own sort of um, metaphysics system and whether or not it actually is going to hold up. Amen, brother. That That is, I think that that's one of the best answers that anybody has ever given. And it was an answer yeah, sure. when I knew that, that when I, I asked that question, I knew that that was the answer that you were going to give. I just had a feeling um, that, you know, you, you cannot back down this, this, intellectual cowardice that we see from conservatives in America, which is, I think, the 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 biggest contributor to the rise of Donald Trump to where, you know, a lot of these conservatives out there, you know, most notably uh, quote unquote conservatives, I have to be very careful because th- this is not really a label that I, I would assign to many of these Republicans any longer. But Liz sure. Cheney, you know, Jeff Flake, who you mentioned, who who is another right. one. And, and a lot of these who have been now pushed out in their own primaries, which I think that, that the language coming out of Washington now is one that is afraid uh, of its own legitimacy being questioned because it is being questioned and, and they are recognizing that. But this moral cowardice that they have, this this idea that, that these are just politics as usual, this is just business as usual, and that as long as the money continues to flow, the spice continues to flow uh, to, to channel uh, Frank Herbert and Dune, that things things will balance out and that this is just business as usual. And, and you know, here you are running for office, taking up that torch, knowing that people are going to attack you for what you believe. And you're saying, I'm fine with that. I'm going to take you on. I'm going to take you on head to head. This and and you have to face that. So just like with with Ted Cruz getting chased into an elevator in the Capitol building during the uh, the the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, which was an insurrection and more of an insurrection mm-hmm. and more of a threat than anything we saw on January 6th, and yet that remains unaddressed and of course yep. the, you know james hodgkinson and the assassination attempts the uh, most recent attempts on the lives of our supreme court justices in the wake of roe versus wade that sure. overturning the dobbs decision you know we, people see it for what it is we see it for what it is and and we're fed up now with all of that said it is what other measures when you get elected when you get to where you need to be in office in in New Hampshire, what other measures are you planning on taking? So honestly, the the single most important thing that I or anyone like me can do is actually not even, it's not even primarily um, legislation. It's primarily seeking to shift the Overton window. So the Overton window is, is commonly known as the, the range of acceptable discourse within any, you know, population of people. Um, so what happened was the norm in, in normal times, the Overton window will shift rather slowly as society sort of adapts and evolves. What happened in our society was, uh, 
leftists, dialectical leftists, captured all of our major institutions. And then they started using those institutions as sort of, you know, puppets and mouthpieces in order to project power within the realm of political warfare to capture the Overton window. So basically, instead of doing it the way it normally works, which is by the mass of people shifting, they essentially used leverage to make it easier to capture the window and shift it to the hard left. Um, and this is a process that was described by people like Antonio Gramsci and Herbert Marcuse and others. Um, yes. So, yes. so what actually, yeah. So what actually needs to happen here is that conservatives, those who would, those who would be traditionalists, those who would seek to return this country to its civic foundation of freedoms and liberties, ordered freedoms and liberties, um, there you're going to need to. You're going to need to break that lever, um, and you're actually going to need to split the Overton window. Because as I as I alluded to earlier, we, we can't really work it out with the other side because we have two mutually exclusive worldviews, and we don't have a common language with, with, with which to talk to each other. So what we actually need to do is completely break the Overton window into a left and into a right. And what we actually need to do that is to begin to make taboo – those um, those squishy moderates and controlled opposition types. And we actually, as unpleasant as it may be, we actually need to make their positions and themselves taboo by taking the tools of cancel culture. Um, and I wrote an article about this. Cancel culture is really nothing but the weaponization of a social phenomenon by which norms are maintained. Um, we, need to, we need to use it the same way the left has, to break the middle apart get everyone centered or to focus that window around the right only. And once we have split the Overton window between a left Overton window and a right Overton window, we will have effectively immunized our entire side from any arguments or cancel culture that comes from the left. Once we do that, we will be in a position to actually move ourselves strategically into a position where winning might actually be on the table. It's so profound. You know, it, and what you're describing here is essentially using the same playbook that the left used against conservatism, the, that the left used against America, because they took control of the institutions and subverted America, and, and that created the world in which we have today, which you have you've described so beautifully and and understand in in such vibrancy i i wish that that you know hundreds of thousands more people understood and had that that level of knowledge that you have that you gained from growing up and being indoctrinated into that world and so you understand their worldview and breaking that into to two mutually exclusive uh overton windows is profound i think that it's occurring it's it's occurring in, it in a, a very unique organic kind of way among both both the right and the left. It is. Um, we need to do a couple things. We need to speed it along, and we need to make sure that none of these um, attack methods. I'll be, they have, there's a lot of attack vectors happening right now. January sixth is one of them. There's other ones that we need to make sure that we are not emotionally susceptible to the, any of the arguments coming out of the left. And that's going to be a weird thing for a while because sometimes people are going to do stupid things and screw up. 
but we need to not let that knock us off of our own, our own emotional basis to be sympathetic with the argument from the left. Because no matter what somebody may do that might be stupid or evil even, what the left is doing is evil, and we can't go sympathize with them because we need to split this Overton window. And I would say that's the number one thing that voters and normal people and activists in this country need to do to make sure that happens. The standard test for any politician on the right from here on out needs to be this. Voluntarily suscept yourself to cancellation by transgressing serious leftist norms. You do that, and you're, if we can get a good mass of people, of politicians, to do that, we can actually make huge progress very quickly in splitting this Overton window. I agree. I agree. And, and you know, for a long time, I was myself, I, I was very uh, disengaged with uh, mediums that, that I know are captured and controlled, uh, social media chief among them, building, you know, my own platform, my own website, which has been uh, a gargantuan task and and one that has been very difficult uh, over the years to do, but one that that was a prevention of that. But now, you know, I, I embrace that not as not necessarily as vibrantly as you've described it here, which I, I think is is wonderful. But we, we have to do that. We have to engage in in that uh, open marketplace of ideas and subject yourself to that. And so, you know, I know that this episode, when it goes up on YouTube, will disappear. I know that. I already <laughs> know that. I already know that I will get probably for this episode alone because of what we've discussed. The times that, that I've talked to uh, people that have ran for office in the past, which have been a handful of times now, every one of those episodes have gotten a warning from Google from YouTube. Every one of those episodes has been taken down. Every one of those episodes has disappeared and you cannot find these on there. You can find them on my own platforms, but you can't find them anywhere else because they have been taken down because the censors have done that. I've come to believe that every time they do that, just as you've described here, that's a badge of honor. And I've begun to just simply point it out whenever I get an email from from Google, which I know that, you know, that's what they're going to do. What I call the the poisonous tree frogs, the, you know, multicolored hair and everything is is, you know, whatever their worldview is, is whatever the current thing is that they support. I put it up. I post it out. I promulgate it for the world to see because you okay, you censor me. Then I know that, that I'm striking home. That these are things that need to be put out, that you are now censoring that which is you, you, you are most afraid of. It is the most damaging to you. And I'm forcing them to react. And you're describing oh, yeah. this in detail that we all need to be doing this. The last thing that I want to ask is, you know, since words do have meaning in this whole psychological operation that they're running right now and the way that last night's speech and and no doubt there there will be lots more of this coming out from the left is this labeling of, of fascism, right? This labeling mm-hmm. of fascism simply because, you know, we believe in a strong America. Meanwhile, they're telegraphing the very same thing. If you, you see any small gathering that Biden has, because everything that Biden has is a small gathering, he does not enjoy the majority support anywhere he goes. He cannot rally a populist base. He recognizes this. This even occurred sure. 
in his own speech last night periodically there were sirens that were playing in the background there was um you know fjb that was being shouted multiple times and and they could not hide this no matter how many people they tried to remove they could not hide this you know so philadelphia was was really representing main street america last night by saying even though this draconian speech that everybody needs to hear the world needs to hear this we're still going to exercise our disdain for you, but their most powerful tool that they think that they have using against us is labeling everybody a fascist. And I know that that you have been labeled that you will continue to be labeled (laughs) that by volunteering yourself out there. You're, you're the furthest person. I would, I would, you're the furthest from the definition of a fascist as I think that anybody could be described Uh, myself. You know, I, I am nothing of a fascist. I'm not a totalitarian. I'm not a person who seeks power over others. I no. think that we should have a reduction of this. There should be no no government entity should have that multitude of power over others, but rather no. we should recognize each other's value as human beings, which the left doesn't want to do. They have a wholesale rejection of that. So with that label of fascism, which so it seems like so many conservatives are, are terrified of this they, they're all oh, the, the language of fascism oh no we're whether they called us a fascist what are we going to do now oh, did, you know i have to bend over backwards to prove that i'm not it's just like having to prove you know if if in court you're asked well you know mr belcher when did you stop beating your wife well i never yeah. beat my wife now i have to argue against the negative and you're saying mm-hmm. don't do that what's our best defense against yeah so of course, you you can never you can never defeat the matrix from within the matrix. So you, you can never you can never answer these kind of accusations on their own terms. You can never defend yourself against being a fascist when they call you a fascist because they'll just use that as proof that you're a fascist. So there's a number of simple things you can do. One of the things I love doing because it drives them nuts and it's true is you just tell them you know fascism is a left wing ideology. It's not right wing. I mean. You can go back to the Weimar Germany sense, and sure, fascism, national socialism, was maybe an inch to the right of international communism, which was the other side of that equation, and is actually where this whole paradigm comes from. But fascism is a left-wing ideology, and that tends to drive them a little nutty. It's just – I mean, and it comes back to the same political warfare, political warfare perspective of deny and make counter accusations. That's – that is what we need to be doing. Don't don't just try to defend yourself. Don't backpedal, deny, and make counter accusations. Amen, brother. It, it, it's it's such a breath of fresh air to speak to a kindred spirit, to speak to an intellectual equal who has real solutions, who's not uh, belching canned talking points. And you know, for the listeners out there. I've talked to you. You're the second person running from for office from the Northeast. Um, you know, I've talked to one other person that's running for office in California, specifically against Ted Lou. And each of you are, are saying the same things in your breath of fresh air in politics. I want to be able to support you. And I want this audience to be able to support you in literally every way possible. How can we do that? Um, you can find uh, my political platform website. It is Mike Belcher for NH, the number four NH.com. Um, you can also find me my writing on Substack, on Substack at a path through. 
Um, that is where I post most of my writing. I also post a, a legislation that I'm going to be introducing up on there. Um, if you want to follow me on Twitter for whatever reason, you might want to do that. I don't know, but it's at Mike Belcher 14. Amen, brother. Amen. And, and do you have a, uh, on your political campaign website, do you have a way that we can make donations? I do. Yep. It's, it's literally on it, literally on every page. Um, uh, I partner with a donor box to, uh, to take donations for that, for the, uh, campaign. And I, I appreciate it. Amen. Because folks, all politics are local it, and, and conservatives for too long now, you know, being very frustrated and, and being in the army during the Obama years, you know, all, uh, through almost the entirety of, of both terms of, of Obama's presidency, I came into the army, um, you know, midway through uh, the second term of Bush and, and seeing the degradation of, of the armed forces, uh, which, you know, are, are very visible today. Um, you know, the, the fractures that we have and, and the destruction of, of the armed forces and, and our readiness in total, um, you know, and, and I, I could talk all day about that. And I have a lot of insider information on that, too. But all politics are local and we have to begin a campaign of local politics state level politics and working our way up to the national level rather than focusing on national level administration alone because the top down focus is how we got here the bottom up focus is how the left got to where they are today and you your solutions that you've presented here are exactly what every conservative in America needs to be arguing for i think that that your solutions here are are, are the best Every one of them are feasible. Every one of them are legitimate, legal counters to the revolution that we have going on that is occurring on all fronts in this country. Brother, God bless you. Thank you so much for being on. And I look forward to getting you you on very soon. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. Folks, again, Mike Belcher for New Hampshire. Mike Belcher, 4NH.com. I'm going to have plenty of links up, and they're going to be posted up very regularly on AmericanPartisan.org. And again, to any other budding politicians out there who are conservative, who are looking for public office, and even you know to the libertarians as well, I want to hear from you. I want to interview you. I want to have that dialogue. I want the public to understand that politics are local. And that these are workable solutions forward. The knee-jerk reaction, the easy solution, is to be calling for violence and violence alone. But violence with no objective is certainly not something that anyone needs to be calling for. And that's going to be fighting on their terms. That's what they want. We have to do the opposite. We have to come at this smart. If it's a fight that they want, it's a fight that they're going to get. But we have to fight it on all fronts. And right now, at this point, violence is the one thing that they are looking for to justify all the other measures. Don't give them that. We fight the world on our terms, and we're going to gain our country back, but it's going to be hard, and it's going to be a very hard fight. Remember always, the Lord's on our side. Folks, God bless, and I'll be talking to you again very, very soon. Zensi Scout, out. (laughs) 